watch this vidcast or I'll gouge your eyes out. Welcome back, horror hounds, to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show podcast. I'm Mike Ghostman Pickle. And I'm James Rivera. You know, it's been a long week for everybody. The election's going on and the post-Halloween blues, so we're going to help you decompress with this podcast. We got some interesting movies and events to talk about, but before we get to that, we have to get to... Horror Show News. So our first news story is Neil Marshall returns to horror with The Lair. And of course, as uh, many horror fans know, he directed Dog Soldiers in 2002, The Descent in 2005, then he did a lot of TV for a few years, did Game of Thrones, Constantine, Hannibal, and then did a short film for Tales, for Tales of Halloween, which was a good little anthology film. And then he did Hellboy in 2019, a Hellboy remake, which I liked and literally nobody else did. Mm-hmm. And then uh, just this year, it's still in festivals. He did The Reckoning about a woman accused of being a witch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just, it's just now in festivals. We're not sure about when that's going to be released. And now he's signed on to do The Lair. Here's a synopsis for The Lair. Royal, Royal Air Force pilot Lieutenant Kate Sinclair, who is on her final flight mission when her jet is shot down over one of the most dangerous rebel strongholds of Afghanistan. She finds refuge in an abandoned underground bunker where deadly man-made creatures, half-human, half-alien, and hungry for human flesh, are awakened. Sinclair barely escapes and unknowingly leads the creatures known as Ravagers back to a U.S. Army base. That already sounds good, but it, it sounds very similar to um, the Overlord that just came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sounds a lot like, um, like a mixture of Dog Soldiers and uh, The Descent. The Descent having the strong female characters and then Dog Soldiers having the, the soldiers fighting monsters. But uh, this is what really gets me excited about it, what Marshall says about it. Neil Marshall says, if The Reckoning was a gothic drama in testament to the power and resi- resilience of women, then The Lair is my true return to full-blooded horror and intense genre action in the style of Dog Soldiers, The Descent, and Doomsday. I'm making something scary as hell, pulse-pounding, and great fun. This is a crowd-pleaser, an adrenaline-pumping roller coaster ride, spectacular and loud, inspired by classic genre mo- movies like Aliens, Predator, and The Thing, and their incredible use of practical creature effects. Featuring a new breed of screen terror, The Lair will be a snarling, ravenous beast of a movie. I'm going to get my hands bloody making this one. Mm-hmm. That really makes me excited to see this one. <laughs> Anytime you mention the thing, practical effects, if that's what you're going for, that automatically means I'm already on board. So, oh, yeah, and he, he wants to return to some really scary, gut-wrenching horror like in Dog Soldiers and, and The Descent. Mm-hmm. I'm all for that one. I've been waiting for him to return to that type of horror for years, and he's finally going to do it. Another one I'm pretty excited about, Jordan Peele is producing a remake of People Under the Stairs. Peele is teaming with Universal Studios to produce, to, to produce it. And uh, Wes, Wes Craven was actually working on a TV series for People Under the Stairs prior to his death. And mm-hmm. this will be the, the first film of Craven's that is remade since his death. Um, of course, as we know, The Last House on the Left was remade, The Hills Have Eyes, A Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. and even Scream for TV. Uh, Two out, of, two out of those was better than the original, I felt. And then uh, Scream 5 is also being made by the one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Scream 5 is also being made by the directors Matt Bettinelli and o- Matt Bettinelli Open and Tyler Gillett, who did Ready or Not. Mm-hmm. 
And as we know, People Under the Stairs follows the story of a child and two adult thieves who break into a house to steal rare coins and end up trapped by the Robisons who are hiding people under the stairs. I'm pretty excited for this. I notice a lot of people complaining about it. Um, what I find interesting about this one is uh, the People Under the Stairs isn't like Scream or A Nightmare on Elm Street or even The Last House on the Left or The Hills Have Eyes. It doesn't have that same kind of influence in horror and pop culture. It's more of like if you're a serious fan. So I find it interesting that they're choo choosing to go that route. And I think that means they could play with it more because I feel general audiences are less familiar with people, the people under the stairs than they are with a lot of Wes Craven's other movies. I'm glad Jordan Peele's not directing it because I would rather him do original stuff. But I like his creative influence and his input and things. So I think it's really cool that he is having a hand in bringing this to the screen. So... um I'm pretty excited for this one. Whatever happens, I, I hope it's good. And like you said, I, I didn't really, until you mentioned it, I didn't realize that Wes Craven had that many of his works remade until this moment. I'm actually kind of blown away that he has that many remakes of his movies. Yeah, and, and People Under the Stairs is probably more ripe for a remake than any of the others that were re remade, you know? The the social commentary and the things that it's about are are things that would be relevant in today's political climate in today's world. I know that's going to trigger some people out there who feel like, oh, I'm tired of the politics in my entertainment. Suck it up. Yeah. Like, there's, a, there's been politics and horror since the beginning of, yeah. of horror. Genre. Yeah. You're barely catching on now. So um, I, I'm, I'm really excited over what uh, Jordan Peele means to horror, mm -hmm. period. Everything he's producing, everything he's, he's directing, even though I, I didn't like us, I, I liked what it did for the horror genre, and it, it's one that I need to go back and revisit. But all the stuff he's producing, I mean, it, not every single one sticks, but most of them are. Most of them are really, it's really good stuff. He's really putting attention into detail, and he's, he's hiring some really talented people to, to work on these movies. And like I was telling somebody else, you, you know, you can compl complain all you want about it, Hollywood not having any original ideas, but it's simply easier to get a budget for a remake. If something is a pre-existing IP, the the studios will just throw money at it because it keeps making money. So mm -hmm. if, if people will stop going to see remakes, studios will stop making them, but they, they probably never will. So you're gonna keep seeing these, so you might as well see one done by a talented filmmaker. Yeah, that's what I think. If we're gonna have remakes, let's do them right and let's add something new. And I think that's the people under the stairs in particular is one that you could use, I imagine anyway, using the basic structure and adding all kinds of new elements to it. So I think it's possible to do an original movie that's like Suspiria. That's a great example yeah. for all. I know that's a remake and I know it has the bare bones of the original Suspiria, but for all intents and purposes, it's pretty much an original movie. That's I would say more inspired by Suspiria than anything else. And it is a direct remake. So I'm okay with that idea because you could do a remake and still make an original film if you know how to do it right. Yeah, and, and later on in this episode, we're going to talk about one of the greatest remakes ever made. And that's, that's the template of how you make an excellent remake. We'll talk about that later on. Yeah, so I have nothing negative to say about this at all. Me neither. More Jordan Peele. Do more. Do more. <laughs> all right, so uh, we're going to talk about uh, the stuff we did this season. Uh, the first thing... That I did every, everything I did this season. Of course, I did with uh, Sylvester Hernandez. I call him Newt, one of my best friends, and he always comes through with the events. 
And the first one we went to was uh, LA Haunted Hayride. This one was cool. It had cool little vignettes as you drive in, little like a, a trail, little tr uh, tractor trailer with the devil on top of it or a little haunted house or something. But it had like stationary ghouls, like, like statues there on the way in. So that's just as you drive in. And then you get into a drive-in, which is a lot of, uh, a lot of haunted attractions this year where, where our drive-in motif. So you pull into a drive-in and on screen is like a really campy production of like a singing rockabilly type of ghoul guy. And then he sings like these silly songs in between these silly horror songs, which is entertaining. It has a big light show. And then they have Crypt TV shorts, which you could see on YouTube. They were okay, they were pretty good. So they played those in between and there were, there were huge spotlights. Like it's a big production, like huge spotlights. Whenever there was a jump scare, the lights come out at you. And then uh, there's ghouls that run around and attack the car. But the ghouls were not that scary as far as the way they looked, but mm -hmm. they were loud and noisy. So they, they were um, like doing a lot of running up the cars and shaking a gas can full of rocks or something. Mm -hmm. So they're noisy, but not that scary and not that um, inventive as far as makeup and stuff goes. But overall, it was a cool experience. Uh, one thing that could have made it a lot better, when you're driving in and you're waiting in line, to get into the drive-in they have all those vignettes and stuff why not just have some scare actors in there running out to the cars i'm not sure why they didn't do that it would have made it a much better made it much much more worth the the admission you know i think it's probably because um these drive-in haunts are a pretty new concept and i think people are less seasoned in how to put them on or how to do it right I mean, I don't want this pandemic to go on any longer, so I don't want to say maybe next year we'll still they'll learn their lessons because I hope the, the attractions are back <laughs> to normal. But I think it's I think it could be it's just it's something new and it it's hasn't had a chance to be perfected. We're all yeah. trying to adapt into the the new climate of the world. Well, that's the way I was I was kind of shocked that LA Haunted Hayride is this thing that's going to be going on for quite a few years, and then. Uh, it was okay, but then we went to another one. You went to you went with us on this one later on in the month. We went to Joe Bob's Haunted Drive-In. Which this is in, a film festival and something of a, well, I don't know how to put You say it. It's, yeah, the, this was at a like a swap meet slash drive-in in Torrance, California. This one was much smaller than the Haunted Hayride, much more intimate with a better atmosphere, but it was almost the same thing. Like you drive in to to a drive-in and you watch short films and you got ghouls running around in between but the difference is uh first of all we got to meet joe bob darcy and felissa rose mm -hmm. and it, it would have already been a better event than la haunted hayride even if they had not been there so that was a huge bonus the short films were much better instead mm -hmm. of going instead of being kind of lazy which haunted hayride did and going to crypt tv and just getting a bunch of shorts from them, they actually reached out to filmmakers like us, which I was ready to be kind of sad and depressed because we entered our short films into this festival and we did not get chosen. But as we sat and watched these short films, every single one was solid, well-made. Uh, some of them were even scary. A lot of them were really funny, a lot of fun. And then Joe Bob's commentary in between, he always makes films better with his commentary. So. Yeah. All the commentary in between, between Joe Bob and Darcy, was all like one of the best 
Joe Bob episodes. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a Joe Bob episode turned up to ten. Uh, they were on point. They were all funny. Mm-hmm. Every gag worked. And then the ghouls that came around to your car, they were much better than the LA Haunted Hayride. Their makeup zombies. was better. Yeah, they, they were like zombies. And they were contorting their bodies. And they were being more, more silent than the ghouls at the LA Haunted Hayride, which would give you a, a jolt. But these ghouls, these zombies at the Joe Bob's Haunted Drive-In, they'd be up on your window. And they'd be sitting there staring at you. And you wouldn't even know they're there. And you turn around. So I got, actually got more frights mm-hmm. out of that. But it's less noisy, but more scary. Uh, it was much longer with a lot more shorts and a lot higher caliber shorts. And every second was entertaining. And then on top of all that, Joe Bob and Darcy stayed until they were, until they were kicked out to sign autographs. Yeah. So, so it, was, it was very much for the fans. And you could mm-hmm. tell that Joe Bob and Darcy cares a lot for their fans. And they wanted to give them a really cool mm-hmm. uh, event. So it was much lower... Uh, lower scale than the LA Haunted Hayride, but I, I thought it was much better, much more fun. Yeah, I agree too. Also because Joe Bob and, and Darcy were doing a, a film festival and the haunt, I, I guess I could understand why you get lazy. You're not going to reach out to submissions when you could just go to Crypt TV. So this is, it, for me, it was something that was geared towards hardcore horror fans. And if you're into Joe Bob Briggs, The Last Drive-In, his uh, Shutter special, if you've been following him since he's been on TNT, and the movie channel, then you're already the diehard of the diehard horror fans if, if you're going to be going to one of his festivals. And um, Joe Bob Briggs is a, a big thing that's helped me get to get through the quarantine, going through all of his, um, the, the movies that he hosts on Shudder, hearing his commentary on B-movies and exploitation movies and slashers and trash cinema. So it was kind of surreal to, to, get, to, to get to meet him. And what struck me most about Joe Bob was... Um, he's not at least based on my impression he doesn't come across how he comes on his show he i actually was slightly intimidated i figured he'd be a cool person but he has you know that kind of gruff texan personality but when you meet him in person he's a lot warm he's very warm he's like hey what's your name he has like a very warm inviting inviting voice extremely friendly very chatty uh easy to talk to so he's actually a lot um a lot much more easygoing then he even comes across on his television show. And of course, Darcy was uh, really sweet. And you could tell that they just were there because they enjoyed meeting the fans. So it was a pretty awesome experience. I did get scared a couple of times at a couple of the zombies. Like I, they genuinely were good at popping up when you're not paying attention to them. So you would just look to the right and see somebody in your face without realizing it. So it did a pretty good job of that. Um, I thought it was a really fun event. I, I had a blast uh, meeting Felissa Rose was also really cool. Felissa Rose, um, Angela from uh, Sleepaway Camp, uh, yeah. really cool person, really nice. It's always a nice reminder of um, how warm and uh, inviting most of the horror community is. Yeah, this this uh, the whole everyone that even you know that likes Joe Bob as much as we do. It's all just a really cool community, mm-hmm. and uh, there's there's even a Facebook group for for Joe Bob's show and it's it's a cool group one of the coolest groups on on Facebook I think mm-hmm. but uh but like you said Joe Bob was so warm and he's so nice to us and he was asking about our podcast and you, you even talked to Darcy about our podcast she might be coming on pretty soon yeah I've been in contact with her over Twitter and uh she's a really sweet person 
They're also I, very tall too. Nick, I, my short ass, towering, oh yeah. my short ass. <laughs> and I, I wrote a little review on the uh, Joe Bob's Haunted Drive-In uh, uh, Instagram page. I wrote a little review and she came on right away and thanked me and, and thanked me for coming. So that was really cool. Yeah. So that was a really good experience, but there's more. So on, uh, on Halloween, we were a bit bummed that Halloween was on a Saturday this year and a full moon and all that. So we were ready to party for Halloween, but of course the lockdown kind of squashed that. So I figured out a way for us to be in the Halloween spirit uh, without the normal parties and stuff. So what I figured is we would go to, uh, again, we went with uh, my friend Newt, Sylvester Hernandez, and uh, we toured some uh, horror film locations. So we started out, we went to the Asylum from Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, and it's actually the UCLA campus Royce Hall. It's a concert hall. Mm -hmm. So that's where uh, we went to the little corridor, the little hallway where uh, the doctor keeps seeing Freddie's mom, or mm -hmm. what turns out to be Freddie's mom, the nun. And then uh, the little archway up top on the top floor where the, the kid comes out being pulled by, his, by the veins in his wrist. From and, yeah, Dream Warriors. Yeah, and Freddie kind of appears on the top of the building and he kind of uh, runs him like a marionette puppet before yeah. pushing him off. So we got to see all that and take pictures and everything. And then we moved on to L.A., which is Nancy's house from Nightmare, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the original one, and also Johnny Depp's house, which was across the street. And this was right smack dab in L.A. off of Sunset Boulevard. So it's in one of the little sub suburbs right off Sunset Boulevard. So that was really cool. And they kept the, the house, the Nightmare on Elm Street house, exactly the same as we remember. The door's a little different, but it's still red. And then we moved on to South Pasadena, which is where we saw Michael Myers' house from Halloween, uh, Laurie Strode's house, and also the hedge. That Wait, I thought that was Haddonfield, Illinois. Oh, no. You've been lying to me, Michael. <laughs> so that was all in South Pasadena. So uh, what they did is uh, I was a little confused when I first found Michael Myers' house. It's like right next to like some railroad tracks go right in front of it. And I'm like, that doesn't look anything like that, that location. So what happened was a few years back, they were going to tear down the Michael Myers' house to make room for some apartments. So I think it was the mayor insisted on moving it so they moved it over by the railroad tracks and then uh someone bought the house right next to it and opened up a gallery called the sugar mint gallery so it's a, it's a i'll put i'll put up pictures on the page but uh it basically had like uh michael myers statues and like some of the original masks from the movie a lot of artwork uh and then you go out into the backyard there's a lot of uh photo opportunities with michael myers standing in the clothesline uh, it's clothesline with sheets everywhere and stuff. So that was a really cool. It's it's like 20 bucks to get in. So I don't know if it's actually worth, you know, it's a little small, little intimate place, but it's cool to, to uh, support. It's for the fans. It's for the fans. Yeah. Yes. So, so support that so other fans can come from all over and see it. And it was pretty packed for being a lockdown around in that area. It's very festive area. Uh, it seems like everybody there, even the people who own the Laurie Strode's house, they uh, put a pumpkin out on the stoop for people it's, to take pictures. Wait, uh, that's not Laurie Strode's house. That's the house on the corner, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
So I, I, I think, I mean, I didn't get to go to that one with you, but uh, you did post one picture from Instagram that I found really funny. It's you standing in the same position by the, the same bush that Michael appears at when um, Annie and Lori are walking home and Annie mocks Lori for seeing men behind bushes. What struck yeah. me about that picture, the first thing was like, that bush is still fucking there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of, it's nice to know that that community has kind of like embraced the legacy of Halloween because it's such an iconic American film and it's a, a big part of pop culture at this point. I imagine that the people in that area would be very festive or do we have kind of like a little bit of a, a tourist location or a piece of pop culture history right there. So that's yeah. pretty awesome. Everywhere we went to take pictures, like Lori Strode's house and the the hedge, mm -hmm. there was a little a little line of people <clears throat> at each place, mm -hmm. like uh, to take pictures. And then uh, there was a guy who was dressed up like Michael Myers at the at the Michael Myers house, standing in front of it, taking pictures with people. And I think he was just some dude who came there to see it, and just people started wanting to take pictures with him. But he, but he actually looked better than a lot of the Michael Myers from the movies. <laughs> So that was really cool to take pictures with him. And then we uh, we came home later that night and watched uh, As Above, So So Below. Um, Newt hadn't seen it, and my wife, Adina, had not seen it. And then after that, we completely nerded out on Nightmare on Elm Street 3 because mm -hmm. we, we had just gone to that location earlier. So it ended up being a pretty fun Halloween. Yeah. But then uh, after Halloween, to cure the Halloween blues, Newt was nice enough to get us tickets to the stranger things experience this was one of the highlights i mean uh because we met joe bob and darcy that's still my favorite uh event of the season but this is a very close second the stranger things experience was clearly high production value uh adult actors that looked exactly like the characters from stranger things and they're running around and, and interacting with people in the cars now this one it's about an hour experience Really? I thought it was, is that still going on? Yeah, it's still going on for a while. I think through November. Okay, so if you're um, in the LA, Southern California area, you guys in that audience have a chance to go to this. And if you're a fan of Stranger Things, it's a it, it was pretty fun. I, I'd highly recommend it. They did not mess around on this one. So you, you enter in, and they did just what I thought LA Haunted Hayride should have done. While you're waiting in line, they have they start the experience already. So you, well, you're, you're kind of waiting in this one spot where it's like uh, you're in the Starcourt Mall. You're immersed in the Starcourt Mall in the 80s and there's performers and aerobics instructors on stage. It's like a cheesy little production like they would have in a mall. And then everything starts glitching. So this is where you wait to get in. And then when you go in, it, it's a parking structure. So you then enter the high, this high-rise parking structure and drive in a spiral all the way up to the top, which already gives you a cool feeling. And then you get almost to the top and there's this little section that you pull into and everybody parks. And then you see soldiers come out and scientists and they start interacting with the people in the cars. And then the Demogorgon comes out and starts attacking the scientists. Really cool, it's, it's a guy in a suit, but it's a really cool Demogorgon. And then, the, through each part of the experience, there's screens on the walls. Mm -hmm. So on the screens is something, is things to make it even more immersive, very realistic looking uh, backdrops. Yeah. And then uh, you advance the top to the top of the place where you get uh, to the climax and you pull into another little parking spot up on top. And then 
all the way in front and in front of you is a big line of screens and on each side of you. And what was really cool about that is they had, uh, you know, soldiers and scientists and then the, the, they're chasing the characters from the show. And uh, you see the Demogorgon comes in up there and they have this big climax where everything that the, uh, that the actors and the performers are doing is kind of mirrored on the screens behind them. So you get parts of the show on the screen with the people acting and out in front. And then with the part of the climax was uh, uh, Eleven falling. And that's the part where she's falling into the upside down mm -hmm. and she actually flips this way and turns upside down. So that was really cool. They actually had the actress up on wires yeah. flipping her around. So that was all really cool. But like I said, really high production value. You could really see the production in everything and a lot of attention, attention to detail, a lot of fun. Uh, the performers were really into it. So I, I, I just love the whole thing from beginning to end. They didn't waste any time, any time of that hour that you're immersed in that experience. Yeah, it was a pretty fun experience. Um, probably we wouldn't have happened that way if it weren't for the, the lockdown, but is it it's cool to see a lot of events being put on like this and still people still being able to have fun even in the middle of a pandemic. And it was a pretty elaborate show. You could tell that they took a lot of time, effort and detail into it. I had a great time. I even ate some of the star court food really oh, yeah. overpriced, but I mean, I think you do it just for the experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I, I liked how the, the characters would come up right up to your window and kind of act out scenes from the show. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like doing a, like a, four of the actors were doing a whole scene, like right next to us. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know what was going on at first. I thought it was real. Like the, the guy, like, uh, Threw, threw down a microphone and he's he was uh almost crying down on the floor <laughs> yeah and our friend sergio the white cry we went to that event with that was me you our friend newt who does all the events and our other friend sergio who is another one who comes with us a lot so um i only went to a couple of those events i had fun um yeah i hope you all had a happy halloween out there i know some people are probably going to be sad I know Halloween's over, the horror season's over, but remember, if you're a true horror fan, Halloween is all year round. We have Christmas coming up, and Christmas is actually a cool holiday for horror, believe it or not. So oh, yeah, Christmas, uh, horror Christmas, movies. Christmas horror films have become a pretty huge uh, subgenre. Not only that, if you pay attention, I don't know how it's going to be this year, obviously, with the pandemic, but almost every Christmas, if you pay attention they do counter programming a lot of horror films are released on christmas day normally and i know because i went to go see a lot of horror movies i think it's pretty interesting that more horror movies are released around christmas time than there at halloween and i think it's the, the idea behind it is counter programming is that when things are so over like saturated with one thing people want to go in the opposite direction so uh horror movies tend to do very well uh at the box office around christmas season yeah, so I'm looking forward to some more good horror films this year. I think we'll, we we'll see if there there still will be because because of the big uh, gap in production of, from the lockdown. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Oh, and uh, and by the way, if if anybody wants to go check it out, the uh, Sugar Mint Gallery and Michael Myers House in in South Pasadena, that stuff's open all year. So they they're 
uh, they do that all year long. Place. So you can, you can go do that and do what we did on Halloween to are all the different horror film locations. That's just a handful of horror films that were filmed in LA. There's tons of them. Yep. So you can do you can do that anytime. It's a lot of fun. Yep. Now we're going to discuss two movies, The Blob and The Blob. Yeah, the first one is The Blob from 1958. This is surprisingly, this is the first time I've seen this one. I really? Watching for the podcast. Yeah, it's directed by Irvin. S. Yeworth Jr. It's based on his original idea and it stars the great Steve McQueen and Annetta Corsat in her first uh, feature film. Mm -hmm. And this was surprisingly much more successful than the remake, even though I don't, I don't think it's nearly as good. Um, and I already knew it was going to be cheesy when it opened up to that silly Beware of the Blob song. <laughs> oh, it's total 50s. Yeah. It's it. I, it's a, it's a, it's kind of it's kind of in the tradition if if you're aware of like those teenage rebellion movies in the 50s like um you ever heard of Gidget? Oh yeah. And stuff like that. It's to me it's a horror movie that's kind of in that spirit where like I'm even Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. There's I think the 50s is where you started to see a kind of I don't know if you would call it exploitation but there's like a B movie genre that revolves around the burgeoning teen culture at the time because I think in the 1950s that was the first time when what teenagers were into became dominant in pop culture and it's all over this movie like like I think the movie's kind of a time capsule you can see a lot of things a lot of like social attitudes and the way that teenagers are get a good idea by watching the blob yeah but, but for me it's, especially after being so familiar with the remake for so many years and finally watching this one, it just came off as way too overly simple for me. Mm -hmm. Well, here's another interesting thing about this movie. It was, it was designed, to, it's a B movie to be, for one thing, it was designed to play at the bottom of, of a bill. It was just meant to, to fill out time in the studio, just thought of it as this cheap ass movie that they were just going to toss off just to fucking fill out their bills. And what happened, I forgot what the movie was, but there was another movie that was at the top of the bill. And the blob is the one that became the pop culture hit. So they had the studio had to switch it around and make a B movie, the uh, kind of an A movie. So this was the beginning of B movies kind of sneaking their way into, into pop culture at the time. And I know it, it is pretty overly simplistic, but given that this was made in the 1950s, I think it's pretty inventive in terms of what it does. The actual blob effect, of course, cannot compete with what they did in the 1980s. But it's also not realistic to expect them to either. Um, yeah. It still looked pretty good. There's a couple of shots that are that are cheesy, and some of it's kind of some of the movie is kind of laughable. That opening song is goofy. Steve yeah. McQueen's performance is good. He has a lot of charisma and star power and screen presence, and you could see it there. But I think he became a better actor as his career went on. But I could see this is the movie that kind of broke him into the mainstream and made him a star. Yeah, I was excited to see Steve McQueen. I'm, I'm a Steve McQueen fan. I was I was excited to see him in this, but as some of the parts were cringy, like his interaction with cops, especially since you see in the remake with Kevin Dillon's character interacting so much with the cops, it was so much more convincing. But in this one, he he seems uncomfortable and not sure what he's doing with the character because mm -hmm. he seems like he's stuttering and he's kind of. Uh, 
un uncomfortable in his own skin and just just acting weird. I I didn't know what the hell was going on in that scene. I don't know why he was acting that way. <laughs> like I said, I I do think it's uh it's kind of a rough performance, but the star power is there and the charisma yeah. is there. You could see it, yeah. And then uh, that annoying old lady that keeps denying everything and makes silly excuses why the blob doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just to discount everything that Steve McQueen said. Oh, no, that's not it. That's something else. <laughs> I almost thought she was in on it for a while because she was so in denial about everything. Like, yeah. you, have trying. you have to really be trying to be doing that. I do like the way that the effects looks. It looks gross. It looks weird. The way that it keeps expanding. And I think, I imagine part of the reason that this movie caught on is not just like, of course, the teen pop culture. But I think as a horror concept, it's kind of brilliant when you stop and think about it. As stupid as that sounds, just an amorphous blob that consumes any, everything, you can't reason with it. You can't talk to it. If you shoot it, it's just going to absorb the bullets. There's really nothing that you could do about it expanding and growing. And I think that it's a completely irrational thing. And I think that's why it probably tapped into a lot of people's fears. The irrational that with which you cannot reason with is always scarier. Granted, it is pretty campy and shit, but pretty interesting for a 1950s film. Uh, I'm convinced that the only reason this is really mega popular is that it had Steve McQueen and then that one iconic scene of everyone running screaming out of the theater when the, when the blob starts yeah. coming into the theater. Yeah. Because it was some kind of silly, funny ways that it was kind of oozing into the windows. You could tell it was miniatures. Mm -hmm. where the blob was oozing into the window but just that that image of everybody running and screaming out of the theater it, it must have been a really uh unforgettable image to watch back in the 50s yeah because it, it kind of mirrors the experience of going to the theater and and what if something like that was was real and then seeing being in a in a theater while people were running screaming out of the theater from a giant blob i'm, I'm sure was cathartic <laughs> And um, this movie is kind of like, I, I've always, I, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, but it always brings back memories. My grandpa showed this movie to me when, uh, when I was a little kid. I think it was something that like a big memory from him, from, for, from his youth, remember when he used to tell me how that movie was such a big deal and everybody wanted to go see The Blob at the time. So it's, yeah. a, it's a cool little time capsule, but it's certainly dated in a lot of respects. Like you said, a lot of it's cheesy. Some of the acting is rickety. And... A lot of it's goofy. The funny song, the song at the beginning kind of clues you in that what you're going to be watching is not to be taken too seriously. But overall, I, I had a good time with it. It's a fun time capsule movie. Yeah, and the, the one part where I really felt that it was the 50s is when they started talking to that little kid. Mm -hmm. And they kind of bend down and start talking to him. And then that cheesy music comes in. And it's the total cliche 50s adult talking to a kid moment. Yeah, And it's like, the cheesy dated music that sounds, it sounds like either like My Three Sons or Leave It to Beaver type of music in the background. Yeah. <laughs> Them trying to relate to the kid. So that was pretty cheesy. And then Steve McQueen and, and all those other dudes running around in this silly search of the monsters. But for me, it was just a lot of silliness and campiness without a lot of fun. Mm. Like there was a couple times with the blob, like uh, with it on the old man's hand, it looked kind of cool. And there was a couple times when it was kind of, kind of overtaking everything and looked kind of cool, but it was never really that, you know, it, I've seen some other uh, 50s and 60s monster movies and they have this element of fun to go with, with the campiness, but th this was just too silly for me. 
It was definitely but, uh, by the standards. Another reason I think that it tapped into like it was popular with teens, because like we were talking about at the time, like um, teen culture kind of took over pop culture with like rock and roll music and what people were into. And every teenager is telling the truth in this movie. And every adult, like the cliche is nobody believes them. And it ends up being to their own. Um, it ends up, it ends up costing them the fact that none of the adults believe the kids. So I think it also kind of captured the tension that was going on at the time, the way that the older generation rejected rock and roll, this crazy new style that kids were doing, uh, driving around in cars and partying and stuff like that. So I think it kind of captured at the time, the tension between the generational shift. And I think that's another movie it kind of probably validated for a lot of teenagers at the time. Like, yes, we are right. And this is what happens when you adults don't really listen to us. Yeah. But one thing I didn't like, another thing I didn't like about it though, was the, the Jane character. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was good and everything, but, but just in the, in the fifties and sixties, there were so many female characters, especially in horror films that would just completely fall apart at the sight of horror. And she would like, there was one part where, uh, what was that part? Where, um, yeah, yeah, uh, Jane sees the blob and she just screams and falls on her ass and drops the dog. <laughs> like, what the Everybody else is running around trying to get away from it. And she just like, she could easily just take a few steps away from it and get away from it. But no, she screams and, and drops the dog and just goes hysterical but and then, Throughout the rest of the movie, she goes hysterical a few times where all the men have to gather around her and comfort her because she's going hysterical. <laughs> See, that's another thing. I don't think that's actually done on purpose. It's just indicative of the era that it was made in. It was comes from an era when people believe that women were supposed to stay in the kitchen. And all women, most women at that time were portrayed as weak, fragile, that they all need a man to help them out. It's, it's very uh, drenched in... 1950s gender norms that have since been shattered in a long time a long time so a lot of things like that kind of clue you in into what the era was and how people were that's probably why so many 1950s movies have the horror movies especially have horrible portrayals of women it's kind of opposite later where horror is now more dominated by strong women and of course the concept of the final girl but it takes you back to a time when society was still a little backwards well, more than yeah. backwards, actually. And the the climax too was just terribly anticlimactic. You know, everyone brings fire extinguishers, and it's it's amazing how much the remake mirrors the original. Mm -hmm. Like it takes everything cool about the original and turns it up to ten and mm -hmm. makes it ten times cooler. And uh, where the the especially the final shot where <laughs> we find out that the blob doesn't like cold. So you see a, a helicopter or something go drop it in the middle of the Arctic. <laughs> Definitely goofy. But um, it was remade in 1988, right? Yeah, this one was uh, directed and co-written by Chuck Russell, who did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Mask with Jim Carrey, Eraser with uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's also rumored to be directing a Witchboard remake, which should be interesting. And this one was co-written by Frank Darabont. Of Shawshank Redemption and The Walking Dead. Yeah, and these two also worked together on Nightmare on Elm Street 3. 
And these two working together is just lightning in a bottle. I think there's something very special about this movie besides it being just a really good solid remake and really well made, uh, high production value, uh, great stars. Shawnee Smith and Kevin Dillon were both awesome in it. Uh, especially Shawnee Smith, I love her. <clears throat> and uh, it's in, an, old, an old man discovers the meteor just like in the first one. Uh, two, high two high school students get help from a guy they had a problem, they previously had a problem with, just like the first one. Uh, it, but this one feels more like Steve McQueen, a uh, Steve McQueen movie than the original does. Because you got <laughs> Kevin Dillon running around, running around on a motorcycle, which is exactly the motorcycle that Steve McQueen used to ride in real life. I think they're. Uh, I think they were kind of reclaiming the image of of Steve McQueen because when the original Blob came out, Steve McQueen was not who we think of Steve McQueen as as now. So it's kind of like a, I don't know, kind of redemption for that character. But according to the to, to the director, um, Kevin Dillon was meant to be just like a bad boy alternative to. Paul, which was supposed to be the Steve McQueen character, but he said in the grand scheme of things, he feels that Shawnee Smith was the Steve McQueen character in this. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, this is actually, it is a far better film than the original. It's a lot more fun. It succeeds in the silliness and the campiness where the original failed. And I think what, um, what really sets this movie apart for me, what I really like about it is... Um, Every character in the town seems very well defined by certain personality traits, and it does a good job of establishing the identity of each individual character based on only a small handful of scenes. You could already tell what the sheriff is like, the type of person he is, the type of human being he is. You can tell what each of the main characters are like. Like It feels like um, it drops you in the world, familiarizes you with all of it with that pretty rapidly, and you feel very invested in these people's lives. I like um, the little kid characters are interesting. They really went out of their way to make the whole town feel like a real suburban town. And that's something that I appreciated, uh, appreciated about it. The banter between a lot of the characters is funny. Some of the dialogue is humorous. A lot of it had me cracking, making, making me smile. A lot of, um, there's just a sense of fun to this movie. And I think a yeah. lot of it comes down to the characters. Of course, the makeup effects are everything, but this movie would not be nearly as engaging if not if you weren't surrounded by a fun cast of people. So I really loved every character in this movie, and I felt like I knew who each person was. Especially yeah, like that little kid who was like listening to the like the music all the time and talking about slice and dice movies and going yeah. to see a that's another thing. I love the Friday the 13th parody in, that they have in this movie by the, the kids going to see some slasher flick called Something Massacre. Sounds like yeah. a typical 80s slasher. Um, really reflective of the culture. But the little kid was really funny to me. The one who was blabbing about how we're going to go see a slice and dice flick. The way that he's not paying attention to anybody always listening to music. I know little kids like that. I've had a little yeah. cousin who behaved in that same fashion. So a lot of these... um a lot of these personalities were very endearing to me. And that, that's another reason why I think this is a perfect remake. Like it, it had a similar little kid in the first one, but not nearly as effective as mm -hmm. the one in this one and not nearly as, as genuine. It didn't, it didn't feel as genuine. And then uh, 
this surprisingly bombed at the box office. It had a $19 million budget. Nine million of that went toward the effects and you could see every bit of it on screen. But uh, uh, it only made 8.2 million in the theaters. It had a, and you can tell, it has a 43 person makeup effects crew and a 91 person special effects crew. And you can see all of it. You, you, you don't just see the nine million that they spent on the effects. It looks like they spent more. Mm-hmm. They, they took a big budget for a horror film like that and went beyond expectations and made it really cool, especially when the, bob, when the blob drops on the Paul character and then Meg comes in and sees him being consumed by it and he's kind of pushing his way through it. You know that you're in for an awesome ride then and it's going to be excellent and very horror. And uh, uh, it has, I think the effects are, and this are up there with like um, some of the best 80s effects, like on The Thing and a lot of Tom Savini's work on, um, like on George Romero movies, like on Day of the Dead. I was, I think this, this, I think you could make an argument for this being one of the top five special effects driven horror movies because everything in here looks so realistic. The blob yeah. looks disgusting. It basically improves on everything that the original was doing with it. With it, it looks very amorphous. No miniatures anywhere, and um, it's gross. It's so gory too. Uh, the effects, like you said, are really um, really something else. It kind of took me back. Yeah, and the uh, interesting little tidbit—the part where Paul was kind of stretching his way through the blob—and and Shawnee Smith comes in. Her character comes in and sees it. The director de- deliberately did not tell her that it was going to be the actor in that in the middle of that stuff. She thought it was going to be something fake that she had to act off of. So when she walks in and sees him kind of stretching through the blob, that's really look of shock and horror on her face when she sees that because she didn't expect to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, the kill scenes are creative in this, and um, I also like the twist, which I don't want to reveal, but um, I feel like the twist on w- the origins of the blob in this movie is a much better explanation than the original movie. It's much more figured out, and it kind of is uh, something, there's a little social commentary in there, I would say, something yeah. about people's greed and how others would allow a small town to, to burn to the ground or just allow many people to die for the sake of uh, carrying out kind of um, psychotic delusions. So I don't want to reveal what the twist was, but I think that story twist is so much better than what the original 1950s movie was. Yeah. Uh, and the, the effect of the guy in, in the diner getting pulled through the drain. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, that's really great. Awesome. And um, I love that effect. I love the, uh, like a full-size character being pulled through a small hole. There's something about that effect that I love, and they did it so awesome in this. <laughs> and then, and then uh, another thing that uh, mirrors the original is the blob attacking the people in the theater. And just like the original, they're, they're watching some cheesy uh, horror film on screen and then get attacked on this one. And that one's done better as well, as you can imagine. I liked, and, uh, I liked the really quick, I wanted to say, I really liked what they were showing on the screen because for a second, you think that what the people are watching in the movie theater is actually part of the film that you're watching. And then you see a Jason-like character in a hockey mask ready to um, mow down some camp counselors who are about to, who are about to have sex. Totally funny. And it, like, is this like the fifties version? Totally. Um, 
tunes you into what was popular at the time. I was like, that makes sense. This movie was made in 1988 and it's kind of like satirizing the popularity of slasher films and the tropes. So I think that was cool that they actually put uh, some effort into actually making a scene and tricking you for a second to thinking that it's actually part of the movie when it's not. Cool little yeah. detail that they didn't really have to do and it wasn't really necessary. But I think things like that show you the type of um, care that went into making this movie and making sure that it was a fun movie. Yeah, and, and another testament that went into the care they made into it, you remember that part with the, with the partially dissolved soldier that was dying? Mm -hmm. that, was, that was played by a real uh, soldier. He was a triple amputee who lost both his legs, an arm, and an eye in the Vietnam War. Yeah. And then they used him as a partially dissolved because the idea that uh, Frank Darabont and the, the director came up with is uh, they didn't have a, a surefire plan going in, but what they knew is that the blob was, they're going to portray it as an inside out stomach mm. where the, the acid is on the outside kind of eating everything that comes into its path. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So they stepped, they stayed with that type of premise. And then this awesome battle with the blob at the end that, that far surpassed the original as well. Mm -hmm. The effects are really good. Uh, the, the tactics that they used to do it, it started with the fire extinguishers mm -hmm. and then kind of graduated into liquid nitrogen type of thing. So it was a whole, just more attention to detail added to everything. Mm -hmm. And then it's somehow through all this, through the high budget, good acting, good writing, it somehow holds on to the campy magic of the first, mm -hmm. but just turns everything up to 10. But it's, it's ramped up, everything's ramped up and it makes the ultimate remake for me. Yeah, um, this was my first time actually watching the remake. I was already familiar with the original and yeah, it kind of blows what the original did out the water. It's just a refinement of, of the good qualities about the original with all the bad things taken out and then the good qualities pumped up. And of course, the era that it was in afforded better effects for the blob itself. Um, goes by really quick. It's a pretty short movie. It's only like an hour and 30 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, I kind of didn't want it to end. I was hoping it would go on for another 15, 20 minutes because it's one of those horror movies that it's a blast to spend time inside the world. Uh, the mad scientist character in the movie, the way that he gets his comeuppance is pretty hilarious. It's yeah. always satisfying to see the human monster in a movie get what's coming to them. Um, yeah, I liked it a lot. I just love horror films like this. Just so fast paced. Every scene is filmed is filmed with, you know, such glee and such love of the genre. Mm -hmm. And to to take all the elements that you liked about the first movie and then add more elements that make it even better. It's just, like I said, the ultimate remake for me. And there's also a lesson for this in this movie for guys who like to get too touchy with girls without their permission. Yeah, <laughs> one of the best scenes. Oh, yeah. Oh, such a great movie. So, yeah. Um, yeah, Blob, really, really good. I mean, the first one's, I, I think the first one is more of like a curiosity than anything. I, I wouldn't say I would highly recommend it, but I think if you're interested in horror and the history of horror, it's definitely an interesting time capsule movie. But the second, the remake, I would recommend wholeheartedly. And I would say you don't even really need to watch the original to enjoy it to enjoy the remake it's no it's not required at all 
Yeah, but the the original is worth a watch. I mean, uh, a lot of the reasons why I didn't enjoy it as much is that <clears throat> I had the the remake in my mind because I've seen it so many times. So it just paled in comparison to the remakes in so many aspects. I couldn't enjoy it as much. I kind of wished I had more nostalgia for it, like I had seen it. I wish I'd seen it earlier. But that that uh, the the scene of it attacking the theater and the people running out is just iconic for a reason. I think oh, it's yeah. really good. It's a very, very, very striking. But for me, the original one is more of a fun time capsule, and the remake is a genuinely great horror movie. And it's the, the movie that inspired uh, director Joe Lynch to being a director. It's his favorite movie, I think. Oh, yeah. I read his five-star review of it on Letterboxd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he'll, he'll go on and on about that movie, because he loves it. Yeah. So we got one more movie to talk about. This one's a little um, much more serious than The Blob, I'd say. Yeah, this one's, this one's another classic where we went all the way back to the 50s for The Blob and then the late 80s for The Blob remake. And now we go somewhere in the middle to the 70s, 1973's Don't Look Now. This one's directed by Nicholas Roeg, who also directed The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie and also The Witches, that classic uh, witch movie. And the co-writer is, huh? That was just remade with Anne Hathaway. Oh yeah. And uh, the co-writer is Alan Scott, who went on to create the Queen's Gambit, which everybody is talking about right now, with uh, Honor Taylor Joy. And it's worth it's worth mentioning because the editing is a big part of this movie. The editor is Graham Clifford, who also edited the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and he also edited Man Who Fell to Earth, which the director directed. Uh, so it's directed. It's adapted from a short story by Daphne du Maurier, mm -hmm. and it stars Julie Christie and Donald, Donald Sutherland. So I'm glad that you mentioned the, the editing of this movie because I think that, um, I mean, obviously editing is so important, but it's particularly instrumental in this movie in terms of the effect that it has on you. It, I, it had kind of a weird effect on me. I wouldn't describe this as surreal in any way. It's, it's kind of realism, but it has the type of quality that makes you feel like you're wandering through a waking dream in a daze as the movie goes on. It has like a very cerebral, slightly haunting quality. And the horror of the movie is very, very, very subtle, but it is there. There's always something that feels a little bit off that you could never put your fingers on, but it never really delves into being full on surreal. But I'm, I think it does a good job of putting you in um, the main character, Donald Sutherland's mindset. You feel like you're him wandering the streets of Venice, Italy in kind of a weird, hazy state of mind, reminiscing about your, um, about your daughter who died in a horrible accident. And um, kind of that kind of feeding on the fears of a serial killer loose in, uh, in, in Venice, Italy. And it has beautiful locations too i mean it's awesome to see a movie filmed in uh, in venice to see uh, a city under the water and everything so i think it's a great locale for a horror movie yeah, one of the things i liked most about it was the locations and the performance by the two main actors uh, julie christie and donald sutherland they played a they play a married couple who traveled to venice after their daughter dies in an accident mm -hmm. and they meet two, two sisters one of whom claims to be a clairvoyant who is being contacted by their dead daughter warning them of impending danger. And uh, the rest of the movie is kind of built on that. Uh, I love the two sisters. Uh, 
they're really cool, really entertaining. Uh, it's good performances by all the actors. It, and it's a strange but really good sex scene. That's where I think that's where I really started noticing the weird editing in the sex scene. Weird editing patterns. Because the editing does something interesting because it shows you what's going on juxtaposed with what's going on in the character's head at the same time. And the way that it weaves in and out of reality and the mind is very, um, almost kind of intoxicating. And it's a very um, slow paced, quiet movie, but I was never bored by anything that was going on. I found all of it engaging. Yeah, and, but I mean, the, the, because of the editing, the, the editing is really bold mm -hmm. and it kind of foreshadows what's to come. It's, it's kind of keeps throwing in little hints mm -hmm. of, of the twists that are coming up. But to me, it just comes off as really strange and it's, it's off-putting but it's deliberately off-putting mm -hmm. like it's kind of trying to put you in the mindset of of donald sutherland and then uh uh it's an excellent reveal that's even scary but for me the reveal came too late mm. it, was, it was too much too much meandering in the strangeness and uh the the editing dare i say came off as amateur to me even though i it, it wasn't amateur it was very skilled editing but it came off as amateur to me the way it was kind of thrown in there and and to be deliberately off deliberately off putting and and if 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 a director's being deliberately off putting like that i want it to lead somewhere and it did lead to somewhere very satisfying i love the climax and it was very scary and very uh jarring but it just came too late for me it it, it lost me for a while I couldn't disagree more on that. I think that if this wasn't edited in the way that it was, it was, it wouldn't do as good of a job of putting you in the mindset of, of Donald Sutherland's char uh, character or putting him in kind of his state. And um, yeah, it didn't come too slow for me. I kind of liked that they were foreshadowing because even though they're foreshadowing something, they're foreshadowing something that you're not very clear about. You can only speculate as to what all of these flashes to something actually mean. And that ending scene, here's another thing. I already knew the ending and I had already seen the ending scene before I ever watched this movie because I watched this special a long time ago. It was Bravo's like 100 scariest movie moments. So that kind of like um, spoiled this movie for me like 10 years ago. So I've always known about the ending. So I knew what to expect. But what struck me is that when I saw it play in context, it actually gave me the chills and creeped me out. And I felt my heart drop a little bit. Like I could feel the hairs on my arm stand up. I was like, okay, I already knew it was coming. I already seen it. And the fact that it still creeped me out shows me, yeah, it was pretty, it, it, it was pretty, pretty effective. So um, I actually want to watch this movie again because I feel like um, when I see it again, I'm going to be, I, 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 I'm going to get a lot of clarifications on things because it is a little bit of confusing. Sometimes I could see where it meet, where you mean where it might be off putting, but now that I have a better grasp on the movie and what it's doing, I think I'll appreciate even more on a second viewing. Yeah. I think I would like it more if I watched it again too, mm -hmm. because I mean, it was, it was off putting for me, but in a way that the director meant to be, I just didn't like feeling that way. Mm hmm so it, he he done exactly what he set out to do. I just didn't like the feeling it gave me. And plus, I've seen so many films at this point that deal with grief, especially the death of a child. Mm -hmm. And I've just been I've seen it done so much better on other movies like like Hereditary. I think that explores grief in a much more and and that was off putting at times as well. 
-hmm. but I, th I think it explores d uh, uh, grief in a much more uh, intricate, uh, detailed way that gets further inside well, your head than this one did. That's more about grief than this one is. This one's more to me about how grief feeds paranoia how it could feed a certain type of mindset it, it, mindset and mindset in your brain or at least that's my interpretation of it yeah i mean the i'm not saying it's bad in any way or that i didn't enjoy it. i i enjoyed a lot of it but it lost me somewhere in the third act is where it lost me mm -hmm. and it lost me for a good few minutes and then and then I'm, it got to the point where this better lead to something so it wasn't enjoyable for me for a period of time, but then I can't deny how effective and scary that climax is. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't aware of it before. So now that I'm aware of it and I know everything that's going on, I probably would enjoy it if I watched it again. Because mm -hmm. that, that ending, ugh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, I think, where is it available on? It's on Amazon Prime? Yeah. Although I will say this, if the movie hadn't ended like it did, it would have felt like a waste of time. It would have felt like you were, we were being strung along on a weird journey for no reason. So I feel like it kind of ends up justifying what it was going towards, going towards the whole time. Yeah, and some of it felt a little like a giallo. I could see that, I could see that. Like the, the mystery and the kind of perplexing uh, almost like a dream state because it's it's weird because it's like you said it's it's a bit surreal and almost dreamlike but it's not it's all based in reality yeah like so i think it had a an interesting balance of of being a movie that mostly traffics in realism while still making you feel like you're walking through some kind of waking nightmare or something like that yeah but yeah um I liked all three movies that we reviewed to varying degrees. I think they were all good, particularly the Blob remake and um, Don't Look Now. Glad I finally caught up on those and you had a chance to catch up on a 50s cult gem. Yeah. So now I have reference to, to say exactly why the Blob is, is a remake that's one of the few remakes that's better than the original. Right. <laughs> think majority of the horror audience would probably be in consensus that the remake is a better film too. Yeah. So uh, I, I do believe that The Blob and Suspiria are my two favorite remakes. I think they do exactly what I want a remake to do. Kind of yeah. take, take the charm of the original and completely twist it and do something else with it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we hope you enjoyed that podcast. Um, little bit more quiet than our recent podcast had a decompress people have been going through a lot of heightened emotions lately but remember everything's going to be okay yeah and we're back to our normal <laughs> podcast now because man i i love those uh stub genre specials that we did all all of october i really enjoyed them i learned a lot from them i enjoyed taking a deep dive into all these subgenres, but holy shit, was that a lot of work from week to week. <laughs> oh yes, it was. We'd, we'd watch sometimes six, seven, eight films to cram for these things. It's, it kind of feels good to get back to the normal, just talking about news and shit we did and yeah. movies we watched. Well, <laughs> next week we'll be getting back to interviews. We were supposed mm -hmm. to have Adam Marcus, the director of Jason Goes to Hell this week, but um, had a discussion with him and I think he's, uh, trying to calm a lot of people down dealing with with the election cycle so I know in, in this country anyway 
everybody gets stressed out around election season and everybody's in a frenzy and kind of distracted. So we had to talk and I said, it's probably better that we do this next week. So you're in a better, like a more clear state of mind. Uh, so next week we'll be discussing Jason Goes to Hell with its director, cool. Adam Marcus. That kind of surprises me because I was more equipped to handle the weight that the election put on us. Because as a filmmaker, you're so used to waiting for answers from festivals or distributors or producers. You're so used to, you know, the hurry up and wait type of thing. So you, you're really train yourself to be patient. So I've been really patient through this whole thing. <laughs> understandable, understandable. Well, we'll and optimistic. Next. Yep. So we'll come to you next week with a good interview. Till, um, also, um, visit us on uh, social media, facebook.com slash pickles horror show. If you want to visit us on Facebook and you could follow us on Instagram as well at pickles horror show. That's our Instagram. And um, we'll also put a link to our flow page. So you can either listen to this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, the platform of your choice. Till next week, folks. Happy, Happy horror. horror.